So through this series, we've seen that throughout the scriptures, people who walk closely with God seem to be able to say basically anything they want. That they, they talk to God as if there's, there's no filter. That this kind of raw, sometimes embarrassing, sometimes shocking honesty that we've talked about these last few weeks is not only does it seem to be okay with God, it seems to be a prerequisite if you really want God to work in your life. That the scriptures seem to suggest that until you're really, really honest with what's going on in your heart, honest with yourself and honest with God, that you're not going to experience that real forgiveness, real reconciliation, real healing, and real mission in life. And so, over the past few weeks, we've seen the psalmist struggling with horrible evils. We've heard him as his heart feels like he's drowning in guilt and shame. In December, we're going to look at him sing songs about how much he hates people. Psalm 137. And then we're also going to hear him sing a song about how he almost lost his faith in God. Psalm 73. But this Sunday is the Sunday before Thanksgiving. So I wanted it to be a little different, a little happier. Um, right now, we are at a period where the holidays, ready or not, are ready to overtake us. So I want to ask a little bit of a different question, a question that probably right now none of you are struggling with, but I hope to convince you that all of us should be struggling with. And it's simply put this way. What do I do when my life is really good? What do I do when my life is full of joy and pleasure? Now, I doubt that any of you are like, oh, this is a real problem in my life. My life's too good. But but let's think about this. Just I would guess that at some point during this very week, not all of us, but the vast majority of us, will be at a table with so much food that you don't know what to do with it. And you'll be sitting there with, with people who love you, even if they don't like you. At some point, you'll probably eat so much food that no human should really eat that much. And then you'll sit down on a big couch and you'll watch a really good game. And you'll probably call some old friends and some relatives who don't live near you and you'll share jokes and catch up. You'll probably watch really good movies. And on Friday, some of you are going to go out and, and not because you need a single thing. But just because you have this opportunity to get a really good deal on something you absolutely don't need, you are going to, for the sheer pleasure of buying it, you are going to buy something. This is just the beginning. From here on out, we're entering in a whole season of shopping and eating and meeting and drinking and bonus checks and celebration. It's the American Holidays. So before this overtakes us, let me make one quick observation. Um, I haven't been in ministry that long, but I've been in ministry long enough to know that if you ask, say, a few hundred people, what are the times when God, when God was most present to you, when he worked most powerfully in your life? What are the times in your life where your faith grew and your love grew and your character grew? What are the times in your life that made you who you are, made you more like Christ, made you love Christ and other people more? And they will 99.9% of the time share a story of deep pain 
and deep struggle and deep doubt. But God carried them through that. But, 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 when life is really, really good, when you're not worried about the finances and that turkey comes out, perfection this year, Ma, and you're eating a big fatty piece of pumpkin pie and there's iPods under the tree, when life is good, people almost never think of God. We see this in Jesus' ministry. All the time. In fact, if you look at the people who meet Jesus and, and are changed, find that healing, that reconciliation, that life change, that mission, that, that passion, that, that thing that breaks out in them, who is it? It's, it's the prostitutes. It's the people who are broken. It's the lepers. It's the people who desperately know that what is going on in their life is not working for them. They need something different. But the people who miss out on Jesus, who turn him down, who are they? Well, they are the rich. They're the educated, those who are well cared for, those whose life is really good. My friends, that is us. And my fear for me and my fear for you is that our lives are so good that we might miss out on Jesus. So what do we do? I ask again, what do we do when my life is really good? Psalm 16 is going to be our guide today. Psalm chapter 16. Let me, let me give you a preface real quick on the Psalms. In the Psalms, we've already found that the Psalms are an authentic, like real gritty guide to anger and hatred and, and lust and all those other strong, bad emotions of life. But let me suggest to you that the Psalms are also an authentic, gritty guide to pleasure. I bet we'd sell more Psalms if we called Psalms the authentic guide to pleasure. Just saying. <laughs> the language of the Psalms is so graphic, so pleasure-oriented, that sometimes it's hard to stomach. That the language that the psalmist will use about seeking God and seeking pleasure is so strong that it, it doesn't always sound like love. A lot of times it starts to sound like lust. It just gets weird. <laughs> Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 63, I've seen you in your sanctuary. I've beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. My soul will be satisfied as with the riches of foods. Do you hear that? If you were a hamburger, I would eat you. My singing lips, singing lips, my mouth will praise you. I can't stop thinking about you and talking about you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. My soul clings to you. My right hand up, your right hand upholds me. Do you know what this image is? This is like, you walk in the bookstore and this is like one of those trashy like romance novels, the cover with Fabio on the front. He just said, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Are we talking about God still? Psalm 60, or 36. How priceless is your unfailing love. Both high and low men find refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your household. You give them drink from your river of delights. 
in our 21st century sensibilities, perhaps the only thing more awkward than praying to God, God, I want you to smash the teeth of my enemy. That's awkward. But how often have you prayed, Lord, let me drink from your river of delights? The Psalms refuse to limit a relationship with God to an hour on Sunday morning or 15 minutes before you start your work day. That these guys, they take God, or rather they find God everywhere. They find Him at their dinner table. They find Him in their cup of wine. They find Him in their bedroom. God is not just a God of church services and quiet times. He is the God of food and drink and sex. He is the God of pleasure. Psalm chapter 16. Psalm 16 starts out like this. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. And this is kind of just a header to the psalm. I won't spend much time on this, but this is this is not so much a plea as it is a statement. He's saying, God, I am totally dependent on you. I have no plan B. So you better come through for me. I have no other source of pleasure, is what he's going to say about this. You're it. And then he... He gives us this, this starts out with this confession of faith about God. He says this, I have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I have said to the Lord, notice that's in all caps. In your Bible, when you see the Lord in all caps, that's the personal name of God. That's Yahweh. That's, that's who he is, his proper name. I have said to the Lord, I've said to Yahweh, this one, the one true God, that you are my Lord, that you are my master, that you are my king, that you can tell me what to do, that I pledge allegiance to you. Why? Because apart from you, I have no good thing. Let's not rush over this too quickly. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Don't, don't you stop there and say, now David, what does that mean? Yeah, let's get a grip, David. I mean, there's lots of good things apart from God in your life. I mean, think of it. Um, you have dinner out with your wife or, in his case, wives. You can uh, wrestle with your kids on your living room floor. You can go for long walks in the Valley of Hinnom. You can play your little harp and listen to good music. You can have feast with your friends. There are lots of good things apart from God, David. But David says emphatically, apart from God, I have no good thing. And this isn't just David. If you read through the rest of the Psalms, Asaph, another author of the Psalms, will actually say it this way. Psalm 73:25, which we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. And we'd be like, really? Have you seen the new iPad? I mean, really? Nothing? So you have to ask, well, David, Asaph, the, what do you mean that there's no pleasures apart from God, no good thing apart from God? And, and I, I don't think here that they're denying that there's pleasure in food and drink and sex, and owning properties, and things like that. In fact, if you, when we read the rest of the psalm, you'll see in verse 5 that he actually, David specifically talks about the pleasure of eating, and drinking, and having a nice property. He talks about those pleasures. He embraces those pleasures. He revels at times in those pleasures. What David is, he's not denying that there are 
other pleasures. He's denying that those pleasures are not truly apart from God. So, David is confessing by faith. Listen to this, that all pleasure, all goodness, any delight or joy that he might find in this life is ultimately from God. So if you say to David, David, why does this pumpkin pie taste so good? He's going to say, well, God grew pumpkins. And then he gave you an ant who just knows how to mix that stuff up. And then he gave you thousands of taste buds on your tongue so that when you put that all together and you take that bite of pumpkin pie, it's from God. So, so if you say, David, why do I so enjoy spending time with my friends? He'll say, you know, God himself is an eternal, selfless, loving community. That he is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit eternally. He is communal himself. And, and so he's created you in his image so that when you get together with your friends in a selfless, loving community, that when you sit on your couch with your friends and, and watch that game this week, it's just going to feel right. Because God made you that way. So, so David, why do I enjoy playing with my kids or sitting around a fire or working hard or a warm bed this fall? Why do I take pleasure in all of these things? And David will say... The answer is singular. It's ultimately God. That all of these many, many good things in life point to Him who is good. That the beginning and end of all real pleasure, all true delight, all real joy, all lasting pleasure is not found in stuff or even in people. Or even in people. But all of that is ultimately a gift from a person, the God who created you and everything else. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Verse chapter, in verse 3 here, we see that he not only confesses to himself, he says to the Lord, Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. And then he turns, as for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. If you notice, I left the footnote up there. This is in most of your Bibles. Another reading is, is as for the pagan priests who are in the land and the nobles uh, in whom all delight, I said. We don't know who he's addressing. What we know is that he's just talked to the Lord and now he's turning to another group of people. It's either believers, saints, or it's unbelievers. We're not sure who he's addressing here. But what is clear is what he says to them. It's, it's going to be absolutely clear. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. That if you run after other gods, gods other than Yahweh, the one true God, that, that your sorrow is going to increase. That if you spend your life looking for these other gods to give you real joy and pleasure, your sorrows are going to increase. That these other gods are not real gods. And they will fail you. That if you spend your life chasing them, it's going to end in great sorrow, not pleasure. So he's pleading with them and he says, this is what will happen. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. But as for me, 
I will not pour out their libations of blood. This is a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. You cut the animal's neck, you catch the blood in it, and then you pour it out on the altar. Gross, right? He says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to make sacrifices to those other gods. And I will not take their name on my lips. That's to swear an oath. That's to pledge allegiance to them. That's to say that my, my family or my business or anything that you swear an oath in, that it is under their leadership, that they are Lord of my marriage, that they are Lord of my business. He says, I won't do that. I will not pledge allegiance to them. I will not sacrifice to them. I don't know about you, but I have not recently been tempted to pour out a libation of blood to a, to a god. That's not a common thing today. And I think we could read this, and if you're, you know, if you're sitting there and you're reading this one morning in your quiet time, you're like, uh, okay, my application today is not to pour out any libations of blood, okay? Got that. This seems irrelevant, ancient. So I want to just take a moment, before we pass over this too quickly and throw it away, I just want to give you a little bit of background about these other gods so that you can have a sense of why someone ancient or modern might be tempted to run after, is the word, other gods, to to offer sacrifices to them, to pledge allegiance to them. So if you flip through your Old Testament and just start looking for who are these other gods that they're tempted from the, the, the first one that you're going to find is um, there, there's two big gods. One is Asherah and one is Baal. The first one, this is Asherah. You will find all over the scriptures, 36 times, you'll find references to Asherah poles. About 50 sometimes you're going to find references to Asherah. She, she is a goddess of, I bet you can guess this, fertility. No surprises there. Um, she's literally a sex goddess. So they believe that she made crops bountiful, Women pregnant, cattle pregnant. And the word Asher right here, this is might be helpful. I actually had a friend named Asher growing up. Asher is the Hebrew word for happy or upright or erect. And that if someone is morally upright, they would be a happy person. That's the, the etymological connection there. Asher, uh, uh is just a, a feminine ending in Hebrew. So this is just the feminine word of happiness or uprightness. So what they would do is... um is they would worship this sex goddess. They would go to these large upright trees, or sometimes they would just take a large wooden pole, stick it in the ground, Asherah pole, and they would have these worship services there. Um, just to clarify what these worship services, without going into any gruesome detail, if you think, these are called Asherah poles. They have them all over town. So you're driving around town, and your kids ask, what is that, mommy and daddy? Well, that's a, a happiness pole, or literally... Another way of saying it would be an erection pole. Yes. So, I'm not going to talk about what their worship services were like, but you can imagine that no one complained that they were boring. Okay, so, Asherah. She's the first goddess. The, the next one is a guy named Baal, or actually the correct pronunciation is Baal. That just sounds better, too. Uh, Baal, he's the, he's the head honcho of the Canaanite pantheon. He's the guy who, who came in and, and destroyed this horrible sea monster, this god of chaos named Yom, and then he set himself up as king. And when he did, he now has the power over rain, and he can hurl lightning bolts. If you notice, his arm's up with a lightning bolt in it. He can hurl lightning bolts. And so everyone sees him, and they say, he is the god of rain and lightning, and that doesn't sound like much to us because we actually think that our food comes prepackaged from a place called Wegmans. And we keep our wealth in a place called the bank. And it's all really just electronic numbers that exist in 
somewhere in cyberspace. But, 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 if, if you are an agricultural society, that your food literally comes from the field out back, then, then the one who gives you rain is the one who gives you wealth, and the one who gives you wealth is your god of money. If, if your wealth is then kept long term, not in a bank, but it's walking around on four hooves, the God who can hurl lightning bolts and destroy your wealth like that is suddenly a fearsome thing. So Baal is the God of money and power. These gods demanded personal sacrifices. Oftentimes they would actually ask for child sacrifices. These gods demanded your allegiance, that you had to pledge allegiance, take your oath in their names, that they could tell you how to live, where to live, who to marry, who your, who your leaders would be, and they could tell you when to go to war. So they had these horrible demands, but they had these amazing promises. They promised sex and money. Now, let's pose this question again. Why, ancient or modern, would anyone want to follow these gods. Why would the Israelites let the chance to make more money decide where they live, who their friends were would be, and who they would marry? Why would these barbaric people let their sexual preference tell them who they are and how to live their lives? Why would these simple ancient people sacrifice their children for a better career? Can you imagine living in a world where money and sex seem to control everything? Where issues of money decide who your president is and when you go to war? Can you imagine a world in which the goddess of sex can overturn the most powerful leaders in the land, even the head of the CIA? Can you imagine that? I bet you can. Their world was no different than ours. They just had different names for it, didn't they? So before, though, before we get all judgmental over our sex-obsessed, money-crazed culture, uh, we do have to ask one, one basic question, getting back to the text, and it's this. Um, what's wrong with sex and money? I mean, I know I'm a pastor and I shouldn't say that, but you're all thinking it right now. What's wrong with sex and money? David says, no matter what the world does, I will not serve them. I won't sacrifice anything to the God of sex or money, and I will not take my oaths. I won't let them control my family or decide anything in my life. So is, is David saying that sex and money is wrong is David just too holy for these dirty, dirty pleasures? And the answer is no. David had a lot of women and a lot of money. So, so is God then, is God actually grossed out by sex and money? And the answer is no. He actually invites us to enjoy these things. So why does David, why does David say, I will have nothing to do with them? Because, verse 4, the sorrows of those will increase who run after these other gods. Listen to this logic. I want you to hear this. This is, if you hear nothing else today, you need to focus in for the next five minutes. Why is David giving up sex and money? Because these other gods give him less pleasure than running after the one true God. 
They steal his joy. David is not giving up the pursuit of pleasure. He's doing everything he can to maximize his pleasure. Let's put it this way. God is not opposed to our pleasure. According to David, at at the end of this chapter, he's going to say in verse 11, with God is eternal pleasures. According to the Apostle Paul, everything, everything in this life is a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. That every, nothing compares to the joy and pleasure he can find in God. Even, even Jesus. What does the author of Hebrews says? Why does Jesus die on a cross? Is it because he's just, oh, duty. And he's just gotta do what's right? No, it says, for the joy set before him. Because he knew that through the cross would be greater joy, greater pleasure. If you want to stop 99% of sin in your life, all you need to do is believe this one thing. God is not opposed to my pleasure. I want you to repeat after me. God is not opposed to my pleasure. God is not opposed to my pleasure. I will find more pleasure with God than apart from Him. But we find this really hard to believe, don't we? God says it's more blessed to give than receive, that you will find more pleasure and more joy in giving than receiving. And we say, I don't know. God says sexual purity is the way to lasting joy in a marital relationship. And we say, I'm not sure if I believe that. God says following Jesus is the way to to the greatest joy, the greatest happiness, the lasting pleasure in, in this life and in the life to come. And we say, but there's lots of other things to chase right now. That our flesh, while God's word says over and over and over again, this is the way to joy, this is the way to happiness, this is the way to true pleasure, our flesh cries out, God, you're trying to take away all my pleasures. I know what's best for me. But God is not opposed to my pleasure. And I will find more pleasure with God than apart from him. And David... We'll then carry this out further. Look at the next verse. His confession of faith, that apart from God there is nothing good, turns into gratitude. He says, Lord, you've assigned me my portion and my cup. You've made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. If you... um. If you listen to the wording here, it echoes the language of a Jewish festival. So it doesn't reference any Jewish festival in particular, but it has the language of it. In the same way, if I were to say, you know, I see that you've uh, decked the halls and filled me with jolly, you would know that I'm referring to Christmas. Yes, that's right. So so when he uses this word, the portion and cup, and he talks about his lot being secure, this is the language of a Jewish festival. It's picturing him, he's saying, Lord, you've given me the choice cut of meat, the leg of lamb, the best cut of meat from a sacrifice. And, and he's pictured here with this beautiful cup of wine. And he says, you've given me a house to live in and a community that's really, really pleasant. This is pure God-glorifying gratitude. 
So this is Thursday afternoon. A full stomach, sitting on the couch, can't even lean forward. It's wonderful. Eggnog in one hand, remote in the other. Game on TV, good friends sitting next to me. My kids laughing in the other room. And you're just full. God, I don't deserve this. I have a beautiful family. And I have a home that is wonderful. And I have a stomach full of great food. And I have a beautiful wife. And I have two kids who are healthy and smart and funny. And I have a church that loves me. And it just overflows, God. You've given me so much. When you confess that everything you have is from God. When you confess your faith that everything I have is from you. And suddenly you realize I don't deserve any of it. And it boils up and bubbles up and overflows into this beautiful gratitude that then overflows into worship. I will praise you, Lord who counsels me, even at night, my heart instructs me, I'm just full of worship, God. And then it goes from worship into confidence. I've set the Lord before me because He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. I want you to see this this process that David's talking us through right here. It begins with confession that then moves to gratitude that then moves to worship that then ends in this confidence. The confidence that his joy, his delight, the thing that he most wants in life can never be taken away. I cannot be shaken. I want, I want you to hear these words. I cannot be shaken. Why does he say that if, if God is David's only good, if we start there, who can take God away from David? No one. You know, if, if money is David's good, well, you can take that away. If his family is David's good, if his health, if his looks, if his abilities, if his kinship, if his job, if anything else is his good, if he believes that is his source of joy and hope and pleasure in life, then those things can be taken away. But if God is his only source of good, He cannot be shaken. It goes like this. Apart from you, I have no good thing. It boils into this gratitude. You've assigned me my portion and my cup. It goes into worship. I will praise the Lord and it ends in confidence. I will not be shaken. The thing goes back into a confession. I will not be shaken because everything I have is from you. The person who finds their pleasure in God alone who believes that God is not opposed to my pleasure, who practices gratitude that leads to worship, this person cannot be shaken. So listen to this. But but what if they take away all my money? The Apostle Paul says, My God will meet all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. But, but what if everyone deserts me? What Hebrews says, God has said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. But but what if I'm persecuted and I suffer? Jesus says, blessed, happy are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. But what if I die? 
Not even death can shake the confidence. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. David, under the inspiration of, of the Holy Spirit, confesses something that he could not have fully understood at that time. He's saying, even in death, I will trust you, God. Even if it costs me my life, I will trust you. I will run after you. I will, I will trust you for all my pleasure. I will run after you for all of my joy, for all of my delight, for all of my pleasure, for all of my hope, for all of my happiness. I will trust you because I know that you will never leave me. You will not leave me to rot in a grave. I'm sure that you will take me to be with you in your joy, in your eternal pleasures. Now, the thing of this is, of course, that um, David did die. He did. And, uh, and he was actually placed in a grave. We're not quite sure where that is anymore, but it's somewhere in Jerusalem. And his body did rot. And uh, you probably couldn't even find any remains today if you looked really hard. So, so what are we supposed to do with this promise that that... You will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Well, the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2 says that that did come true. See, David didn't really understand the full concept of what was going on here. But, but a thousand years after this, there was another son of David who was born. And, and he, unlike anyone else in the world, he actually believed that God is not Opposed to my pleasure. That this son of David confessed that he would live only the will of the Father. That he showed constant gratitude to his Father in heaven. That he worshipped completely and that he put all of his confidence in God alone. In fact, his whole life was a constant flow, a constant cycle of confession to gratitude, to worship, to confidence. In fact, there was an unending cycle in his life of confession, gratitude, worship and confidence. Unbroken and unending. And in his life, though, they... We did take away all of his possessions. We deserted him. We persecuted him. And with our sins, we nailed him to the cross and he did die. But the word of the Lord came true. And three days later, he rose from the dead because God would not abandon him to the grave or let his Holy One see decay. God accepted his sacrifice on our behalf and raised him from the dead so that all who repent of running after other gods, of treating God as though he is evil and opposed to their pleasure, that they can know that they are forgiven by God, that they can enjoy God in eating and drinking and sex and owning your own property and all the areas of life in this life 
and in the life to come, they can be confident that all of those are from God and to God and for God and that they can know God in those things. That they can have the same hope that David had. Hope that even though my body will go to the grave and it will rot, someday it will be resurrected just like Christ. Resurrected to be with Him in joy. Resurrected to be in eternal pleasures at His right hand. Do you believe that God is opposed to your pleasure? If you do, you can't worship God. Do you believe that God is opposed to your pleasure? If you do, you will not follow Him or serve Him. Do you believe that God is opposed to your pleasure? He's not. Whether you've been a believer a long time or you've never made a decision for Christ, I want to challenge you today and this Thanksgiving and this Christmas that with every good bite and every good drink and every good game and every good glass of eggnog and every good present, that you confess that I have no good thing apart from my God and you allow that to bubble into gratitude for what He has done for you. And you allow that to flow into worship so that you can have confidence that your joy will not be shaken by loss or even by death. Pray with me.